Hello, and welcome to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. My name is Jamie Edwards, and I'm a full-time professional endurance coach, age group triathlete, and triathlon fan. The Diary of an Age Grouper podcast is all about content relevant to age groupers. We'll talk to athletes, coaches, and experts who walk the walk. this episode of the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast, we welcome back Tim Reed. This is a continuation of our chat from episode six. And for this one, we're also joined by Clint Rowlings, Reedy's partner at, at RPG Coaching. We cover some general coaching topics, including communication with athletes, learning from other coaches, traits of top age groupers, and the differences between pro and age group racing. Following this, we discuss the time Reedy raced a professional Ironman of 12 hours a week of training and how Clint coached him through this project. If you haven't already, head back to episode six and listen to round one before you get stuck into round two. Enjoy. Welcome back, Reedy, and welcome, Clint. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Good to chat again. Now, this is a continuation of our previous conversation, Reedy, and this time we are lucky to be joined by Clint. So towards the end of last chat, we did start talking about your aero camp and you put a bit of a shout out for people who might be interested. Can you give us an update on that and maybe tell us a little bit more about the camp? Yeah, so we're a little bit short of um, the numbers we need at this stage to go ahead with the aero testing with Jim Manton. Um, we hope to get a few more and then get it across the line. We'll be ho- we'll be hosting a camp regardless. So um, a camp will be on. It's just a matter of whether we can go ahead with the aero testing. Uh, that that is yet to be decided, but we hope to have a decision on that in the next week or two of whether we can we can move ahead. Obviously, for Jim, his expertise is very much in demand. We've got to make it worth his while. So the numbers um, are pretty important. We've got to get the numbers to make it worth his time. So for any of those age groupers out there who don't want to go and ride 15 to 20 hours a week and they just want to fr- find some free speed, <laughs> jump on board, get in touch. Yep. Or you could do both. And yeah. just be, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. be riding like Mike Phillips. Exactly. Um, so speaking of, um, can you tell us a little bit more about that training camp? And I guess what is an aero camp? Like what were you know, what's involved in an aero camp and how does that differ from a standard camp for you guys? Yeah, so Jim has developed the technology to actually measure angles while people are riding outside because he found that how people tested in the wind tunnel or on a stationary bike was very different to how they would when they were riding outside. And also even the aerodynamics change a lot. I mean, as you're pedaling a bike, you're, you're actually the front wheels tacking back and forth. There's lots of different things. People don't leave their head perfectly stable. There's a lot of differences that that need to be measured in an outdoor setting. And it's very hard to do that accurately, but Jim's got that very, very well dialed. Um, He's at the forefront of um, probably the best outdoor testing going down in the U S at the moment. So um, the the main, the way it was going to work was you'd do a virtual fit online with Jim um, just to get the initial uh, things right to know whether you are even in the ballpark to even start the aero testing. So there might be a few changes you need to make, before you do an actual face-to-face preliminary fit with with Jim. So he would then do another fit 
at the at the camp and make the changes that he knows will test faster without even having done any testing. And then you start the testing phases, which will be typically two people working with Jim for the entire day. Um, and then it will obviously the next day will be another two people. So it's not mass numbers at once. It doesn't work like that. You need to take the time and, and trial different helmets, different suits, different bottle configurations. Uh, there's a, there's a lot you can test. We, we will trial, you know, arms further out, lower head, higher head, all sorts of things to, dial in what is the absolute um, fastest possible setup for you with what you've what equipment you've got or what equipment you could get because we'll have a lot of stuff there to, to that you can that athletes can try and then outside of that the people who aren't on the testing day will be doing uh, their just usual camp activities swim bike run with a good good bunch of people and a coach in attendance supporting them um, and yeah, so that's that's the main deal. Um, we've we've always run camps. Well, since Clint and I started getting quite serious with RPG, we've always had a camp, which has worked really well because the athletes get to know each other um, early on in the season, and they get to run into each other at races. They've got friends at races. More importantly, they also find they've got training partners. Pretty much whichever city they go to, they know people that they can connect up with. Um, so. Yeah, if we if we can't get the error testing off the ground, the camp will go ahead regardless, as I said. But we're really, really keen to try and make all the attendees as fast as possible with um, testing with Jim. Okay, and apart from that connection with other RPG athletes and the coaches, what's the goal when you guys are running training camps? What's the goal? Is it about more volume than normal? Is it about that technical aspect or is it something else? Clint, do you want to take that yeah, one? Mate, mm-hmm. Depends um, what time of year. Like we've run early season or early year camps where it's just about getting together, maybe getting off those um, Christmas kilos and getting ready for the season. Or then we've also done like real specific, like kind of between six to four weeks out from Ironman events where we do very specific like brick sessions and, and testing and, you know, nutrition, uh, dialing in and stuff like that. But it's it's whatever time of year and whatever the main goal of the masses who are coming, um, we'll, we'll just kind of cater to it. So it's a, it can be varied, mate, for sure. Yeah, of course. Sounds good. And then you guys have got a mix of face-to-face coaching and doing some coaching where you guys are located in Australia, but it, you also work with a lot of athletes via correspondence. Can you... Maybe both speak a little bit about that and how you manage that. Maybe starting with Clint. Uh, how I manage it is probably, I'm not very good at managing it, to be honest. I probably have too much contact with them a lot of the time. Um, but developing a relationship with the people you coach is is probably key from what I've found. I find it very hard at the start if you don't have a good relationship and you don't feel like you're genuinely finding out how they're feeling or, or what's happening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just for me about, about getting a good relationship with them and, and being in constant contact when you're not seeing them all the time. Um, but one thing for certain is it, it's always good to see them once or twice a year, uh, especially when you know that they're really pushing the, the friendship when it comes to um, like fatigue and, and how much training they're doing. It's always good to be able to monitor that, but yeah, it's, 
um, for me, it's it's very much just about staying in constant contact with them, even though I don't see them all the time. Yeah, and how are you doing that? Are you is that phone calls, texts, oh, training text, bit, comments, a bit of everything? A bit of everything, obviously. Yeah. Like pretty much my day starts every day with jumping on the computer and just sifting through some data, um, looking at some comments on there, and then it's obviously it's varied between like when they get to how close to races they are or, or, or what phase they're in. Um, but yeah, it's mostly phone calls for me, but obviously texts are going back and forward pretty much 24 seven, but yeah, it, it's constant phone contact. And do you have a preference? Like, do you prefer face to face? If you know, and obviously you can't do that because of geographical Mate, restrictions, obviously, but um... my, uh, my old man's been a coach for, for years and years and years and and he coached a lot of local athletes and i did i did find like watching him do that all the time i found it that like i learned a lot from that but also learned what i didn't want and what I, what i was hoping to achieve with with coaching is to get good relationships but not have to constantly be running sessions but still do a good job so it's i do as much as i I mean, I've just been in Melbourne for a, a week to see a few of the athletes down there. Um, and, and that certainly helps, but it's, I just do the best I can with the ones who are, are kind of, um, well, oh, Australia wide. And actually we've got a few in the States and in Canada too, that we have to just, we don't get to see that often. So we just do the best we can. Yeah, of course. And what about you, Reedy? Well, I think the, I do run group sessions every week around here. To be honest, um, a lot of it's just I, I feel like I got a lot out of the sport. The sport was great to me and I don't try and really make any money out of the local stuff. It's just I like to run sessions to to give back a bit to the community here. There are some some of my athletes uh, that I do coach are able to attend. Um, I don't have a ton of local athletes, but there are some. Um, most of the people that come to my sessions are just keen to – get involved and join in. Um, I think that we're sort of lucky in this day and age that we I can get do so much video analysis of people in sessions too. So people um, that aren't that aren't here or can't a lot of people come up to train just for a week in Linux to join in the group sessions. But for the people that can't, there's still it's still very easy to to check in on, okay, we're working on this technical aspect of your swim for for three weeks. And then recheck. We'll get another video. Um, Clint and I do a ton of bike fit adjustments. We don't. We try to steer clear of like, um, you know, of calling ourselves bike fitters at this stage. But some people just don't have the opportunity to go and see some of the expert bike fitters. So we get them a lot closer to where they should be, um, which is which is difficult to do virtually. But it's it's certainly it's. It's a it's a process um, that would be a lot quicker if we could see them in person. Sometimes it's just a slight adjustment, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, um, on a whole, the local stuff I do is is not necessarily just for my athletes. It's just because I enjoy being a part of the community and and seeing people get fit and enjoy fitness and and uh, most of the most of my time is is spent. Um, on my athletes, which is just phone calls, videos, um, messages. That's, that's the big part of the day. Yeah. Cool. So obviously you've both been in the sport for a long time. Um, really, I think you mentioned in our previous conversation that 
you ended up, you, you thought you'd have a two to three year hiatus from work and that would be the extent of your professional career and ended up being 11 years. Um, I was wondering if you could both maybe boil down what you've learned over the years into a couple of things and then how you apply that to the athletes that you coach. And there might be, might, I know that's a big question. So maybe thinking about two or three key things that stand out that is something that you learned along the way as an athlete, as a coach that, that you really try to uh, apply to the athletes that you're working with, starting with Reedy for this one. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing I've learned I've learned is that how what appears to be a relatively untalented athlete can drastically change if they're willing to put the put the years in and just be consistent over time. Um, you know, I I would not turn around and say some of the pros I've raced who've beaten me, who we've had battle I've had battles with. Five, six years earlier when when I first trained with them, I was I did not expect them to reach the the uh the standard that they did. And I and even myself, I was not uh what 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 you'd call talented. Like I, I had no background in swim, bike, and run when I started. And I keep seeing it over and over that the people that put in the 10, 12, 15 years of work, uh, it's such a gradual process. There's so many physical adaptions that just can that just happen over time and continue to happen that I don't think, uh, yeah, I, I don't like to put limitations on the athletes I coach. I like to just see, I, I have a very open mind as to what they can achieve and, and certainly don't put the limitations on them. Uh, so yeah, I think time and consistency can be equal some really fantastic results. I think um, I very much agree the word, that you use is consistency. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be, we always say consistency over craziness. It doesn't have to be this crazy session every day or, or huge weeks every week. It's just being consistent um, and, and just slow incremental gains over years. Um, the other one that I would say would be balance, like as in you can't just be crazy obsessed with the sport 365 days of the year. Um, I think you will burn out. I think you'll potentially your partner will, will lose interest in uh, in your constant try chat and also uh, honesty. I think if you can be honest with yourself, as in honesty and confidence, really, in terms of if you're honest with yourself when you're tired, if you're honest with your coach when you're tired, and you can be confident to, you know, just step back. And and realize, yep, yeah, the right thing today is to not train, even though um, you know that session's prescribed, and let my coach know that I'm, I am tired. Um, you'll get the best out of yourself long term. Yeah, some good tips there for sure, Reedy. Going back to your sort of untalented athletes point, have you ever had it the other way around where someone thinks oh. they're going to be a world champion and and they just they're not going to get close? Oh, too often. I think it's um. It, it's crazy. Like I, I went to a talent ID camp with N-Swiss when I was, I don't know, just get just starting to think like getting involved with the sport and I don't even know how I ended up there. I think someone knew someone who said, oh, he's pretty good at other sports. Let's see how he goes. Um, man, I think out of all those athletes, you know, there were so many freaks, freaks there, <laughs> not, not freak, like just freakish talents. And the only one who's actually ended up really doing anything Oh, I shouldn't say that. There was there's a couple, but who, 
you know, lasted a few years, but Aaron Royal was there and he was, he was a freakish talent, but he also just loved to train. He's a hard worker and he's still going. And, and again, it was a, it was a nice combination of freakish talent combined with the ability to want to train hard each, not hard, but train consistently every day, year in, year out. And he's done some really cool things. And, um, and he was way ahead of where I was at, but I, I feel like the only way, the only thing I matched Aaron in was I also loved to train very much and consistently and was happy to put the years in. Um, ironically, one of the coaches at that camp, I won't name him, I got in the pool and um, straight away said to me, you're never going to make it as an elite because <laughs> you're too far behind in the in swimming. And, like I, and to be fair, like I could sort of understand his point. I mean, I didn't know how to tumble turn. I barely knew how to swim. Um but that taught me <laughs> that taught me that you know like I I just thought oh well I'll just keep racing racing age group I love it so I just kept going and and things happened and uh, it was just a nice example of why uh, for other athletes that might have completely shut off their ambition and turned them away from the sport I was in it for the right reasons I, I wasn't there to become a pro and make money and all that sort of things I just liked doing it so and I loved the process and so it didn't affect me but it, it would have could have destroyed a few other athletes, which is why I learned as a coach, never, never take that path. Um, that coach is now disgraced for many other reasons. Uh, I was amazed how long he lasted actually. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you see it, you see it all the time. It's a, it's a really hard grind and talent only gets you so far. Um, anyone also got to be yeah. like a bit of an open book, right? Like with coaching, like sometimes I know I've got it wrong. Like people will, say to you this is what i this is what i want to try and achieve in the sport and you might form opinions quietly obviously you're not going to go and uh, openly say oh i don't think you can do that and let's it's like oh let's see where this goes and all of a sudden six months 12 months down the track you're like wow i was wrong this person actually really is a super hard worker and they are making constant progress and then you look back on it and go well i got that one wrong yeah, for sure. So for the untalented age grouper, we, let's go three tips. Let's go really generic question and uh, let's go three tips for the untalented age grouper. They're, they're super keen. They're in it for the right reasons, like you said, Reedy, um, but they, you know, they're just kind of starting from scratch. What, what, are you, what are you telling them? What are you, what are you getting them to work on? <clears throat> so the super talented age grouper, they're starting from scratch. No, no, um, un- untalented. Oh, untalented. sorry. Um, yeah, other end. Oh, I, I don't think you need to really. I don't think you need to do anything drastically different. It's it's up to them, really. Like it's it's. I think it's um, gradual, progressive overload. So not going too much too soon. Realizing that they don't have any history in the sport. Um, the biggest thing that turns people away is injuries and burnout. And so that's that's one of the key things to avoid. Um, so yeah, keep them involved. Keep it fun for those first especially that first couple of years, you don't have to do anything. Uh, you don't have to be a genius sports scientist to get improvement. You just got to not kill people. Um, so, and they'll, and they'll improve quite well. It gets a lot harder, I think, as, as that improvement curve starts to plateau. And then it really does take some, some uh, more advanced sports science to, to make sure that um, you can still keep getting those improvements that are harder to get the further into their journey. But yeah, I think, I think, 
especially for younger athletes, I, you know, I've long been critical of the high performance program because I think they're taking kids too young and burning them out as we've seen um, a history of doing. I mean, every, every person involved in that program is just trying to keep their job. They're not, they're not interested in how, in setting up the athlete for success in 10 years time, they're interested in getting the maximum results in, you know, 12 to 24 months, um, which is a really, I think a really unfortunate way to approach things and, and um, certainly quite um, destructive on, on these kids. So yeah, I, I think keep it fun. Um, You don't have to maximize their, you don't have to absolutely maximize their performance at that, at that point in their time. It's, it's about, um, it's about gradual progression and, and, even that some of my athletes that, you know, want to take races really seriously in their, in their first couple of years or two. And I just have to remind them, they'll ask me all these questions about whether they should use a a disc or whether they should do this or, and I'm like, I'm like, you can try whatever you want. I'm not really that concerned about how this race goes. I'm more concerned about what training you're getting in and, and setting you up for peak performances in three or four years time. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't want to sound disinterested in that race, but it's just, you know, some of my younger athletes are so nervous that they're going to let me down, you know, and they're six months into working with me. And I have to remind them that I am not even really worried about that race. I'm, I'm using that race to teach them to race better. I'm more worried about getting in the consistent, consistent aerobic blocks they need to do to become the sort of athlete I know they have the potential to be in five, four, five, six years time. So... Uh, yeah, I think, as I said, keep it fun. Don't burn them out and stay injury-free with, um, you know, all the things I think we discussed in the last episode. I think, yeah, I'd, I'd very much agree with everything you said. I'd say consistency is the first one in just your day-to-day training. Enjoyment, like don't you don't need to overcomplicate it for until it gets really like years and years and years, you can just you can just keep training and and not specifically, and you'll just you you'll get better slowly. And then when you do start to take it a lot more seriously, and you feel like you're a little out of your depth, that's when you get a coach. Um, but yeah, I'd say consistency and enjoyment would be the two two tips to make sure that one you progress a lot, and two you progress over time or you stay in the sport um for a long time yeah that that word consistency just always comes up in these conversations and it's um it's almost cliche but it's it's because it's true and it just needs to be applied in the right way and again last conversation really we talked about things being sustainable and a part of that is enjoyment which you both looked at making it fun and that's how you can create sustainability and approach and that's how you can be consistent over time and it's it's years like you've both talked about years and looking ahead and looking up the road years you're not just looking in six to 12 month blocks you're looking in three four five ten year blocks which is which is very interesting um and then i think uh clint you just mentioned there you know essentially what you're saying is diminishing returns so over time it's the simple basic things that are going to yield the best results and then once that starts to whittle down and you've got those diminishing returns that's when you you lean into you know a little bit more of a scientific approach and a little bit more detailed approach so well and that's probably more so just about like managing fatigue and intensity right like you you can you can go and train with a fair amount of intensity or or like do hard sessions fairly often when you're not doing like massive volume 
uh, and you're only kind of early in the sport. But when you start to get a bit more volume in there and you start to have more lofty goals and you, you start to think, oh, you know, when when really should that hard bike be or that hard, hard run be and you feel like you're out of your depth, that's when it's like you need to get advice and get good advice. You know, there's a lot of um, pretty ordinary advice out there. So, um, yeah, when, when you feel like you're out of your depth, then it's time to to seek some help. Yeah, when the details start mattering. Yeah, so look, we've already established you've both been in the sport for a long time, both as athletes, really professionally, and Clint as a top age grouper. And then you're both obviously well-established coaches working with both age groupers and professionals. Obviously, with the name of the podcast, let's focus on the age groupers. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about learnings from different coaches that you've had over the years that you think the listeners can apply to their own athletic journey? And if we have coaches listening maybe some tips that extend to the coaches start with Clint for this one. Um, what have I learned? Well, I've yeah, everyone's different, right? Every athlete, you know, you can't just, there's a lot of people who coach and they just prescribe what they've been taught over the years or that what they've, they've, they're training that they've done over the years. And that doesn't necessarily work for, you know, you could have a, a 50 kilo female who's incredibly economical with her running or a, or a hundred kilo man who just pounds along. And it's like, you, you have to be careful of the prescription you give. Um, besides that, it's, it's, it's very much learning the athlete and learning what makes them to like, what, what makes them progress better and, and what they don't respond to. Um, yeah, that's it's pretty simple in my eyes. Ready? Yeah, I I agree with that. I think um the from the coaches I've had, I had a, a range of coaches and all of them I think I got really positive lessons from and all of them had amazing attributes. I think we discussed it last time Jamie where I think there's no perfect coach and and certainly there were things that I could pick apart from each of those coaches which I think could have been done better, but um you know, working with Matt Dixon, I'll start from the beginning, really. I, I started with Grant Giles and he taught me the importance of an aerobic base. And I still think he's the big volume, aerobic volume I did with Grant. And it set me up so well for later in my career, especially working more with, uh, then working with Matt Dixon, who was, who was a bit more of a, um, I, I guess we moved more to intensity and, but I had that base to draw on to, for it to be able to work. Um, so I also learned the power of a group with Grant Giles. So we had a, an amazing little squad up here in, uh, in Lennox head and training with guys that were, you know, training with Clayton Patel, who was better than me at swimming training with Burkle, who was much better at me than running certainly longer distances. I was probably a bit quicker on the shorter stuff, but, um, learning to watch these guys who were, who were already doing quite well. And, you know, I, I was sort of everything I'd learned at university was that we needed to smash carbohydrates, you know, as much as we could outside of sessions, but I was watching all the guys who were really successful and they weren't doing that at all. And I was like, okay, so that that's, that's um, debunked. I know that's not true. So it was just watching better athletes was really important that I, I got out of that squad. Um, and then, you know, Matt Dixon, I think for, for the time I was in with young kids, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of financial pressure and I'd made the leap to being a pro 
he was the master psychologist in many ways and understood how important um, saying the right thing and how to motivate the right athlete. He was the only coach, only person at that time. I think I did an FTP test at one stage and I was maybe in the first few weeks and he just, he, he said to me, you know, Tim, uh, you can be a world champion. And I was like, what? Like no one had ever said anything like that to me before, but that he planted that idea in my head and suddenly everything I did became more professional. I suddenly had a real purpose to it. Um, he just opened that channel in my brain that allowed me to believe it. Um, and I think he was just so good at doing things like that. And, and, and even certain races, he would really, um, dial up the psychological approach that I needed, um, to get the most out of who I was racing, sorry, get the most out of myself and, and, um, you know, try and beat the guys I was racing. Um, so he, he taught me to have confidence in resting, which I, you know, as a very anxious athlete and person in general, I hated, I, I, I struggled to do, to recognize that I needed rest. Um, and so that, that taught me how important it is to also teach my athletes the value of it and, and recognize the athletes that are, that are sort of type A addictive personalities who struggle to take time off. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I can't say enough about uh, Matt. Um, he was, he was obviously has a huge influence of my coaching. I think the most out of it, all the coaches um, and especially in the way I have taken, I think, sports psychology super seriously with with each of the athletes I work with. Um, so would you say, Reedy, that you're like every coach you've worked with has certainly shaped the way that you coach? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's no secret. I probably should have, probably might have got greater long-term results if I'd stayed with Matt longer term, but I was also super curious and I was always that anxiety in me was always like, yeah, I'm going well, but could I go better learning more and knowing more? Um, so Dan, Dan Plews was, um, very influential. He, I've never had a coach who was just checking in on sessions the same way he did. He loved just looking through the data, super invested in, um, how each session would go, taught me the power of implementing low carbohydrate approaches, strategic low carbohydrate at the right times. And, had some had some of my best races with Dan. Uh, Alan Cousins is an, a superb exercise physiologist. I think there was, um, I, I think the difference between Matt and say Alan was you've got someone who is very sports science focused in Alan, and and everything has to be an algorithm that matches up, which is sometimes hard with people. But um, whereas Matt was more of the art style of coaching, um, and I think there's space. I think there's a space for both of that and and trying to include both of it. I learned a lot from Alan in terms of using training peaks better, looking at the patterns of training stress balance and um, how long it typically takes someone to bounce back from an Ironman or um, there was, there was so much I learned from Alan as well. So um, yeah, I, I sort of probably over answered your question, but I felt like it's pretty important to, to just demonstrate how much, each coach has their strengths and you can learn a lot from them. Um, I still think though, it's a big decision leaving a coach. And I think I probably moved through too many coaches because for example, with Alan Cousins, I think a lot of his philosophies um, would work really well if you, if you stick with it and stick to the process over quite a few years. And I was coming towards the tail end of my career and 
was too impatient to to really see how it could have worked out. And I'm now recognizing a lot of the things I disagreed with him at the time. I think he was actually bang on. Um, and so, so certain yeah. coaches that like at certain times in your career were either like I know for when we first spoke because Reedy coached me. Um, a few years ago and it was like it was the perfect time because you just recognized I talked we talked about things and you just recognized that at that time I just kept doing base like aerobic volume basically and you said you've done enough of that let's mix it up and it certainly worked so if you do you think that certain coaches at certain times in your career would have worked perfectly or exactly the opposite yeah oh a hundred percent I think um you know if you've done a some some coaches do lean more into intensity and you can get to a, the sort of an end of a 18 month two year process and you're like I'm really plateauing here you move to another coach and you go back to a big zone 2 block and suddenly you're firing again and then the same thing can happen as we saw with you I was looking at the training going man you've done more zone 2 than anyone I know it's time to time to switch it up and and I think it's seeing that uh approach from seeing how that worked out with different coaches I I now like to think there's no, I, I want to be a coach that doesn't have a real set protocol with athletes. I want to be a coach that's just a problem solver and looks at the full picture of what's going on. Why are we plattering? Let's try this approach for a block and see how we go. Um, so, so then yeah. on that, like if I know that in that situation, if I didn't like trust your judgment, like I, I there's no doubt that like I was stuck in a, in a rut of doing the same thing and then you, you mix it up and there's you're always going to have hesitations or like kind of slight concerns but as long as you trust the coach and have respect for him it's a bit like all right well let's just let's just stay the course and see how this works yeah uh sorry to go too long on this jamie but i think the trust factor is massive because yeah, for sure um i you know regardless of whether matt dixon's approach was going to be right or, or wrong he had me in the palm of his hand in terms of trust. And so I did exactly what he said. Or And I did gradually make suggestions and we came to um, work more together on things over time. But especially that first year, I just I just gave it all over to him, which is very hard for me to do. And I certainly didn't do that with Alan or with Dan, um, which is probably, you know, where, where I didn't see the same peak results at the biggest races. So trust is massive. It was a good point, Clint. Yeah, that's interesting. You definitely got to have that trust, obviously. Um, you, you know, and and the athlete needs to be able to buy in. And in this case, the athlete was you, Reedy. Um, I found it interesting because obviously you guys have talked a lot about that consistency and consistency over time and being patient. But at the same time, you mentioned being curious and wanting to sort of explore um, other other ways of doing things because there obviously isn't just one way of doing it. But it's um, to Clint's point how you apply that at different times in the journey. Um, obviously, you hear the stories of athletes being with one coach for quite literally 10, 15, 20 years in some high-profile cases, and then you've got athletes that jump around. So just out of interest, uh, Reedy, how long were you eat with each of those coaches there? You started with Grant, then then Matt Dixon, then Dan Plews, then Alan Cousins. Just for reference, in that 11-year pro career, how, how long were you each, with each one? So I was with um, Grant from... Oh, I think it's, it's interesting. I sort of just, I worked with Grant while I was an age grouper working in Sydney. And then when I came up and worked with the group, um, I was a bit of a know-it-all. So I started writing my own program, but still did 
a lot of Grant's um, group sessions. <laughs> and I guess my program still looked a lot like what his group were doing. Um, and then I worked with Matt from 2013 through to uh, 2016. And Dan came on as sort of co-coach from um, from 2000 and I think for 2015. And I was sort of working with both of them, um, which was actually quite hard. Um, it's not probably... Oh, am I on mute? No, no, you're, no, all good. you're there. You're oh, there. Okay, cool. Um, sorry, <laughs> just listening to the wisdom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it was quite hard. And then, uh, so I worked with Dan for a year, but just the, the thing I found, it was just a bad move trying to have two coaches. And I know I made it difficult for both of them. Um, I was trying to have the best of both worlds, which I was essentially there was three coaches. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um. And so then I, and I, the one thing I, I, I remember saying it to Luke Martin, who was doing some coaching with me at the time is I always just enjoyed triathlon more with Matt Dixon because it was a lot more, he gave me a lot more um, room to have, I guess uh, there's, a, it was more open to interpretation. So um, some people hate that. Like I know I've got some athletes that really want to know the specific Watts that I want them to ride. And I'll, I'll give them that if they're that sort of athlete, but Matt might be more like, you know, we're building to strong effort, think Ironman, conservative Ironman effort, you know, and if I was feeling good, I might push that a little bit more and, and, and go a little bit lower sometimes and having kids and a working wife and think, and being a terrible sleeper that I think that allowed me the flexibility to adjust the training a fair bit um, that you need sometimes need to do when you're not seeing your coach day to day. So, yeah, I always enjoyed it with Matt. And then I think 2017 through to 18, I worked with um, with Alan. And then I actually had my, I think my best couple of years were obviously probably 13. Biggest jump in performance was 2013 with Matt, 15 and 16 with Matt and Dan. And, and then um, actually I think my best, one of my best years was 2019 when I was self-coached. But by that point, I'd taken on everything I'd learned from them and, and them and definitely was able to have the courage to rest and do all the things that I wasn't able to do earlier in my career. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for sharing. So I just want to do this quickly, just because you mentioned it, Clint, but you mentioned you had been sort of doing things a certain way for a while and then obviously Reedy coached you for a while. Can you can you just give us a little bit of an insight into that? Like what what specifically were the things that you were doing? And then again, what specifically was it that Reedy encouraged you to do? And then maybe the outcomes of, of that and and how that was applied practically and essentially, you know, some of the results um, yeah, of working so that way. I came from like my dad's done this sport for 40 years or something stupid where the old school, it was like, you know, just bulk volume, you basically do as much as you could and, and, he taught me a lot, like, and not only that, but you, you kind of mimic what they do when you start to do the sport. And then, um, so yeah, I, I just gravitated towards that. And then I planned on doing New Zealand Ironman at one point. So I reached out of all people to Cam Brown and back to what Reedy said in terms of like what your coaches taught you. Um, Cam Brown taught me that I'm one of the softest humans alive. And that if you want to be good at the sport, you've just got to be an absolute maniac week in, week out, which worked pretty well for about 16 weeks. And then I crashed my bike probably because I fell asleep while riding. Um, 
and so I had a break from there and went back to doing my own thing. Um, Reedy and I, I think it was like 18 or 19 in Hawaii. We, um, you know, did a bit of training together and stuff. And then we went to China after that and we just kept chatting, kept chatting. And he just basically suggested that, you know, after, after talking about it a lot, that so many years of doing just, just that same stimulus, like you're going to plateau heaps. And so why not mix it up a little bit? And to be perfectly honest, there was probably two people at the time in the world that I would have taken their advice because I was still pretty young and pretty arrogant. Um, and you'll like this one, Reedy. The other one was probably Crowy. So, um, yeah, I, I I bought into it. And it was just a lot more – well, first off, I'll say that we you always – gravitate to the things you like doing and and you always shy away from the things you don't like doing and so like i started with reedy a couple of months after hawaii and in my like off season i did my biggest swim week of uh biggest swim session of the year and that was just because and and i questioned it obviously i say like what well, you know like this is just the start why are we doing this and the explanation was was awesome which obviously makes me buy in more and it was just yeah we just went to more um high intensity more over race like over ironman type effort short like not so many like i was always the sucker for like a six hour ride we just went to more like super specific four hour type four and a half hour type rides where you know you're trying to hit numbers um a lot more swim volume a lot more swim intensity and yeah it worked it's just Back to what we said, you've got to, you got to buy into it. And yeah, what at the time I was a bit hesitant, and I'm like, you know, this is far away from what I had been doing. But it just, it's just good to have a change. And yeah, it certainly worked. Yeah, so it's a new stimulus for you, like after having many years in the sport. But the the key point there is it was appropriate for you at that time, and you bought into it, and therefore it was effective. Yeah, for sure, for sure that. Um, at that time, I mean, I could have kept doing what I was doing, but you know, the, the beauty of changing it up too was going from doing, you know, high 20 hours a week down to like 20 hours a week. Um, you know, there's a lot more time in your week and I certainly enjoyed that, but yeah, it was very much about just buying in and it was like, let's see what happens. Yep. And, uh, you're obviously quite a handy age grouper, Clint, but can you maybe both share some common traits of the top ages, top age groupers that you work with? And again, Clint can start here, but you know, the athletes that you're working with who are consistently performing at a high level and that, that can be podiums, world championship qualifications, you know, those, uh, those outcome goals, but it might also be athletes that just seem to get a lot out of them and their bodies, uh, given their particular situation. Um, it's, we're going back to the same word it's consistency <laughs> yeah. um unfortunately yeah it's consistency and it's also not shying away from hard work or things that you're uncomfortable doing you know it, you'll get guys who are amazing like bike runners but they just are terrible swimmers but they they're not afraid to go and be terrible at it and work hard at it because they they recognize their weaknesses and go you know what i've got to be better at that if i want to be better but um, yeah, in, in regards to like, it's definitely different for, for age group guys compared to the pro guys where 
it's a simple task, right? You're going from start to finish and you're, you're dosing your effort as, as evenly as you can through that day. Um, so you just got to look at where you can make the most gains and work hard on that and, and, and you'll be better at the sport where obviously the pros are kind of chewing on their stem early in the bike and that's certainly not the best way to do an Ironman, but it's, um, yeah, that's, that's how they have to race. So the age group guys, it's, I think, just the consistency thing and also it's, um, yeah, just, just not being afraid of the hard work and also the being ordinary at certain parts of the sports at times. Yeah, so that's not necessarily when you say doing hard things. You don't necessarily mean you've got to do a really, really hard couple of sessions every single week. Um, it's actually doing things that make you uncomfortable and you're not you're not as good at. Yeah, you know, which I is mean, you know, your example yeah. of doing you know, Reedy sort of forcing you to do more swimming. Yeah, that's right. And like, it's not that I'm useless at swimming, but I just didn't like doing it. And so, like, you know, you want to be better. It's like if you want to be better, then you know what you got to do. Or, or sometimes you've got to. Um, be resigned to the fact that you got to do things that you you'd rather do something else, but that's what you need to do to be better. Yep. Reedy, anything to add? Nothing, nothing too much to add. Um, no, I think Clint summed it up well. I don't want to repeat the same, same points. So no, I'm happy with, happy with that response. Yep. All right. Fair mm-hmm. enough. And then Clint, you just, you touched on, um, you know, the differences there between pro and age group racing uh, Reedy, could could you maybe um, shed a little more light on that? Obviously, you started as an age grouper, then you sort of dabbled in pro racing, and then you're a full time professional for a long period of time, and then you've sort of come out the other side. Are there are there are a few things that sort of stand out? The differences there. Obviously, Clint um, mentioned one thing there around you know, the dynamic rate, dynamic nature of racing. Is there is there anything else that stands out for you? Yeah, I think um, I, I used to get frustrated when people might compare. Um, an age group race to a pro race because there was a there's a lot I, I think I feel like there was um, more dynamics in play such as having to make the swim group to, to make sure you're with the front group on the bike not because that's still the same in the I mean you still got the way too small draft distance between riders that age groupers have the same benefit from that but more because the media would make such a huge have such a huge influence on the pro race so you might have the luxury of swimming below LT2, um, you know, nice sub-threshold aerobic swimming in the swim as an age grouper, but it's just not a luxury you could afford if you wanted to finish top five in a lot of pro races because if you miss that, if you miss those motorbikes and things, then it's uh, that would that would change things. And, and, and often races would be decided by small decisions. Um, you know, it could be a, a five-minute surge at the right time that's you just wouldn't, I certainly wasn't doing that in the age group races. Um, I was sort of just racing for the fastest time possible. Whereas, um, you know, no one's thinking about time in the pro race. You're just thinking about knocking other people off um, as you go. So the racing is quite different. Um, I think the higher the level of age group racing, the more similar it does get. And um yeah, but they're probably the biggest differences. It's just, it's a lot more spiky. I'm actually writing an article, supposed to be finishing that today, um, about why age groupers shouldn't ride, race, ride their bike like a pro in the races. And I'm hoping to get a file from Dan Plews when he, you know, had a superb race in Kona and compare it to mine. And I can, I know the first time I raced in Kona, the time I spent spiking above 400 watts, it was like 
I don't know, it was like over 24 times, just all these surges trying to stay out of the draft distance, trying to quickly overtake because of someone had slowed too much. Um, and, you know, and then you run like you, people wonder why so many of the pros blow up on the run. It's, it's just, a, it's like you've been in a criterium sometimes. Um, you're pretty depleted. Uh, whereas when I raced in Kona as an age grouper, I knew exactly where I could sit on the bike, which wasn't very, wasn't very fast, but I knew where I was at. And then I ran exactly how I thought I'd run. And it was just, yeah, it was just a long, it was just a steady old well-paced day. Whereas I never had that luxury. Actually, the one year I did, did that in Kona, I had my best year. So maybe I should have been doing that for all my Ironman events. Um, but certainly in 70.3 racing, if you did that, you were just out the back and never had a chance of, uh, of really competing for a win. So it's the biggest difference, I would say, is just the, the amount of spikes and, uh, yeah, elevated intensity spikes that you have to put yourself through when you're racing. This probably sounds like an obvious question, but I'm assuming as a pro you, you, you train for that and you, you, you do. train to be able to absorb those those spikes. But even then, sometimes if you're going with a move, you're going with a move, and if that's if that's beyond the level that you've trained for, then you, you just got to have to suck it and see. Yeah, I mean, with Matt Dixon, we definitely trained for it. So we would do, you know, it might be, I remember one session, one of the biggest key sessions we used to do for Ironman, uh, for Kona would be, uh, and I should preface that I was never, you know, I don't think I was ever really suited for Kona. So it's not that this session didn't work. I think it would have been very effective for someone more talented at that race. Um, but I think it was four or five, maybe four times 25 minutes. And every fifth minute would be a spike up to sort of Olympic distance power or, you know, threshold power just for a minute, then back to Ironman Watts. Um, so that was a, a very typical session for us. Um, so, yeah, you, you develop that ability to, to clear lactate, but also get the feeling of of just, yeah, I think partly conditioning the, the brain and body to be able to keep doing it. So it was, uh, yeah, I... And honestly, it's um, it is funny that the one, like I said, that once I, I think sometimes you have to give up on trying to win a race to have your best possible race, and that was what I did in 2019 over there. I realised, okay, I finally come to terms with the fact I'm not going to win Kona. This isn't these aren't the conditions that suit me. I don't make that, or maybe I'm not committed enough with my time, and already have three kids and all that sort of thing. So. I raced my own race just for fastest time and and fun, pretty much how I would have raced it as an age grouper and had my best best race. I only fell out of the top 10 sort of in the last couple of K with cramps. So, um, yeah, it is, it is interesting after so many years of saying how hard it is as a pro because of all the spikes. The irony was when I just ignored, ignored everyone and raced my own race, I did a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting insights. And I guess it's having those spikes and just preparing for them in training is just specificity, isn't it? And then for age group, if you were just racing age group, you just you would remove those spikes from your four by 25 minute intervals and then just try and go and hold that come race day. And yeah, you know, you're time trialing all day as opposed to racing to the dynamics of the of the race and other competitors. Yeah, hundred percent. Sure. All right. Well, last thing I'd like to talk about here. Um, is your 12-hour-per-week Ironman project that you did and recently found out that you worked on this with Clint. So it's good that we've got him on the call. So firstly, you you missed out on listing out a coach on, on your list of coaches before because obviously <laughs> Clint, you work with Clint for this project. So um, 
Can Reed you just does his in- own thing all the time, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's been <laughs> no. a common theme in this conversation. <laughs> um, so can you just tell us um, sort of, tell us a little bit about this project and why it came about well, and then I'm going to throw it to Clint and let him have his say and then uh, we'll just ask a few few questions and unpack it a little bit. So to give it context, I prepared properly for Ironman Australia about four times before this race rolled around. Um, and so Clint will tell you, I, you know, I spent money on training camps. I, I loved Ironman Australia. That was the race I always wanted to do well at. You know, both times that I did really well there, I went under the previous course record. And uh, even the, the the times I didn't do well, I think I was still second place. And, um, and I... Yeah, uh, so by the time it had, I just didn't know what was going to happen. I couldn't keep investing in the sport. I was lost a lot of sponsors through COVID. So I really went hard on the coaching business. And then I'd pushed Ironman. They weren't going to make it a pro race. And I'd been very vocal publicly about making it a pro race and then realized how hard it is to really set up a business and had no time. Um, Monica was back working full time because I'd lost so much income through COVID. And I was like, holy shit balls. I have at best 12 hours a week to train. Um, so I just gave it a crack. And uh, I actually think that if I had played it exactly like I'd said with um, that Kona race where I finished 12th and, and just raced to my numbers instead of racing the guys I was with, I, I could have potentially ended up still on the podium. But... I 100% agree with that. That was, <laughs> if you didn't say that, that was me first first line coming into this conversation. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Looking at the the day unfold, it was like, it's this is exactly how it, it should unfold. And then he got off the bike and ran potentially the, I think it was probably the fastest 10K out of everyone off the bike. <laughs> and I remember yeah. screaming at him just like, slow down. Like, and yeah, it kind of. So the reason being was I, I just, uh, I had a bit of a brain explosion anyway. I just thought I'm just going to go for the win. I don't really, I didn't really care for finishing third. Um, You know, I've I've won that race. I've I've done really well there. I, I just really wasn't that interested. I just thought I'll try for a miracle. I didn't, I wasn't under any illusion that it was likely to work out. So I just went for it. In retrospect, I'm like, I I don't really regret it either. Like another third place after a lot of podiums in my career, I, I don't. I probably would have wondered even now should I have gone for the win. <laughs> um, go, like when I mean, a lot of people in triathlon circles during that COVID period would be very much able to relate to, you know, train for a race, it gets cancelled. Train for a race, gets cancelled over and over to the point where you just kind of burn out with it. But yeah, I very much agree. We went to Bright at one point when Ironman was still going ahead. And I remember leaving and really went to Geelong um, after a huge training block and was second or third, I think. And um, I remember going home thinking he's still got it. He's like, he's good to go. And then it got cancelled again. And there's only so many times that that can happen before one, you have to be realistic about your life situation and two, you kind of lose that absolute laser focus to to go and do the training. So when he said 12 hours a week, it's just like, it's back to what we said earlier, right? Like you've done so many years in the sport that it was basically cut 
all the crap out or all the all the add-ons, all the you know non-key sessions, and just just do the key work and see what 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 happens. And funnily enough, like everyone said, it was a fail, but I still I still went top five in an Ironman off twelve hours. So I don't it wasn't a complete fail. Um, I just yeah, it was just it was pretty dumb. I think it, no matter where where you're at, what you've done, who you are, I just think you've if you want to have the best race possible, you've got to do some testing leading into the race and be realistic with your pacing. And and anytime you start dreaming or thinking that you're an athlete that you were five years ago. When you haven't done the work, you are—it's uh, going to be a long, painful day. Um, oh, I did have another point it's slipping out of my mind at this point, but yeah, but it was—it was actually it was a pretty chaotic time anyway. Um, and but it was fun; it was fun to do it, and and I don't regret it. <laughs> yeah, so we've established that you basically you weren't training twelve hours a week, a week by choice, but it it did sort of turn into a project and. Essentially, you know, you had a, a working wife, three children, you were building your business, but you wanted to go and race in the pro race because you're still a professional athlete, but you you just had 12 hours a week, which is obviously very relatable for, for age groupers. So, yeah, can sorry, you talk I, should, about- I should, sorry, I should add, I um, the reason I was really going hard on the business was I had a eight month wait until a cardiac ablation because I was having a lot of issues at 70.3s with um with my heart and not not an issue at Ironman intensity just when I'd go harder and uh so my thought process was I would just have a bit of a break setting up the business <laughs> because um I was naive enough to think that once you set up a business things just roll along and you it's things get a lot easier <laughs> um and then I thought I'll get back into full-time racing once my heart was sorted and go back to not full-time racing but get back to some bigger hours so in the end, the day before that ablation, I found out my private health insurance didn't cover it. And so that pushed me back another year. Um, so that was sort of, yeah, that that sort of ended the pro crew <laughs> for this yeah, so- at this point. <laughs> Although I have told Clint I'm making a 40-year-old comeback in a few years. I'm all for it. I think you <laughs> definitely should. Might even yeah. step up to 14 hours a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so another basically another reason, you know, I guess it's all that's all context. So obviously very relatable. So Clint really calls you or tells you, "Hey, I'm doing I'm in Australia, but I've only got 20, 12 hours a week. Can you coach me?" Um, how, how do you approach that? How did you set that up with him well, as as the coach? Obviously, what he said earlier, at, like it was very. We talked about it off and on. Um, it certainly wasn't a dictatorship. Um, it's like you chat about things, you work out what's, and, and what he said further to like, to working with Matt, like you just have to be really, when you don't have time and let's be honest, he had no time. It's like, if there's a, if there's a window to train you, you have to just take that opportunity. And if, and if the day shuts down for one reason or another, then you just got to be very adaptable. So it's like, first up, I like, as soon as he said he was going to do it, I thought to myself, I remembered back to that long build run he did in Brighton. I'm like, he's still on. And then he said he was going to train very, very limited hours. And I was like, okay, well, you just got to kind of adjust the expectations and um, see what happens. And to be honest, I think there was a few weeks in there that were even under 10 hours um, because that's just how life went. So it was, no, we just chatted about it more often than not, week in, week out. And we were just very adaptable to, what he was doing 
Um, probably one thing I, I stayed with him the week before the race and it would have fallen on deaf ears, but I could have gone there and said, look, why don't you just have a long, steady day and see where the, where the, where the cards land. But, um, races are going to race mate. And he just went out there and did it. Yeah. And we love to do this here. Um, so bear with me. Did you have a, a weekly schedule or, or a general sort of template that you were trying to, to follow? And if so, what did that look like? Short answer is no. <laughs> uh, it was mostly based around the group sessions up there. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, just very adaptable. I uh, very, you know, we, we change it almost every other day to suit. Um, but no, there was, the answer is no, there was no real set schedule because when you're so busy hmm. um, and with three kids, it's, you can, you can schedule things and it just doesn't, doesn't always work. Um, and the hard, the hard part was with the group. My priority was the group over my own training. So, you know, we might have a three or four hour ride on a Saturday, but I could be spending two hours um, chatting with some of the mums at the back. <laughs> so, then, like, so we- with that, he'd end up the the, the um, compromise there was Reddy went and bought himself some um, touring tires that had heaps of resistance. So he'd go and chat with the mums at the back, and he'd be blowing more than <laughs> they would be because he was pushing, you know, heaps of watts to be going twenty five k an hour. So no, it was very. Um, unstructured but just it was more about the you know trying to get the best out of the time that he had and then adjusting it each week and trying again and then adjusting the week after and trying again yeah so what was the schedule of the group training there uh at at that point oh yeah read at uh it's changed a few times right you had the swim squads there was run uh, swim squads on a wednesday i think it was uh, we run. do we, always a virtual intense, more intensity on the Tuesday virtual ride. Um, yeah, running in, running on a Thursday, and then a group group set. We used to do a Super Saturday on, which would often be a swim bike run on the Saturday. Uh, and then I would try and get a, yeah, I was trying to build up a run on the Sunday. Um, so yeah, it was pretty. That was pretty consistent. I think those sessions. Um, it was more the duration of them. You know, I'd plan on doing a extending the t- the virtual ride on the Tuesday from one hour to two, but it just um, often you'd get the yell from the kitchen, Tim, I need your help. <laughs> so, and then yeah. also things like, you know, if, if Reedy was going to see a friend in Brisbane, he'd get on his bike and start riding and then the family would pick him up. Or like if they were going down the coast, he'd have to do that as well just to try and fit in some of the training in the week. So it was very much like, and it's something that you see a lot when there's people racing in the pro field and realistically they are working a lot more hours than a lot of the age group guys. So it's, um, yeah, it was actually impressive that the result from, from the, the work that was put in to be fair. Yeah. So the, the structure came from the group training sessions and the frequency, what I'm hearing is the frequency was probably there. It's just the overall volume wasn't there. And I'm assuming you were you were kind of training as an age group and you weren't really putting any of those specific things for the for the pro race into the into your training and the specificity of it. Uh, but then obviously you went and raced the pro race. And as you've both sort of agreed to, if you'd potentially gone and just trained all day, 
for this race, it potentially you could have had a better overall day and not had that big blow up. But as you said, oh, Clint, I race is going to race. I think it would have been 20, 20 minutes quicker if I'd just done a solid training day. Um, and especially if I, I, I didn't do, I almost didn't want to know. I'd, I should have done some lactate testing right before the race and been like, okay, this is where I have to ride. I would have lost even more time on the bike to what, to what I did to Burks and stuff. And, and then, but it would have been like, you know, lactates, the intensity is not the killer on the run. It's normally, um, well, it was for me going way too hard, but I, I could have, I could have hung on to a four minute case, I think with where I was at, but I, yeah, it was just got a bit silly. And for you, Clint, through that experience, are there any takeaways for, for age groupers? Obviously, age groupers are going to train as an age grouper and then race as an age grouper most of the time, whereas obviously Tim was racing in the pro field. But there's, was there anything you kind of took from that experience of of helping Reedy through that period and, you know, having such um, big time restrictions that you you can sort of give if, to the to the age groupers? If, if you want to do well at Ironman, you need time. That's that's what we can take from it. Yeah, it's yeah. um no, it's like the the limiting factor is exactly that. Like if you're not getting the time to get your legs conditioned to running 42 kilometers off a bike, even you know, steadily, not like a pro where you go out and, and run hard and almost essentially hang on. Like if you don't have the time to to spend getting your legs conditioned, then you just, it, it is going to be a tough day out and you've really got to dose your effort realistically and go about the day without an ego. And that's the way that you'll get the best out of yourself. Yeah. And apart from the group sessions that Reedy wasn't willing to sacrifice on, was there anything, any sort of weekly staples or non-negotiables that you were sort of really trying to encourage him to, to get to? Or is it just basically, you know, try and get the as long as you can on the bike, as long as you can well, on, on that, those long runs? That's where, like, say, the Tuesday morning intensity would basically get extended as long as possible each week. And some weeks, you know, as Reedy said, it would get cut short an hour. And other weeks we might get another hour on that. But, yeah, not really, to be fair, because you, you got to be realistic, not idealistic. And if you're, you know, trying to get him to – for example, do a long ride on the weekend and then, you know, you've got kids sport. It just doesn't work. So it was a bit more the the main focus was the group sessions and making them work as effectively as possible for the end goal. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, last question on this for you, Reedy. Is it a secret or can you tell us about what a Super Saturday looks like? Oh, we just use that term because there's three three sessions in there. I think um, my Super Saturday for when I was um, more competitive as a pro, I, there was a couple of key key ones going into an Ironman event, um, and I know Clint uses them with um, with the pros and more elite age groupers he's working with now. But uh, typically, it's one one and a half to two k swim in your wetsuit because people do not realise how much that can aggravate your lower back and and also. Even just your, your your sweat rates a lot higher, so we we typically do a one and a half to two k swim at, at Ironman intensity, trying not to get too idealistic with it, and then jump on the bike for a two hour time trial, um, up to three hours when I was feeling a little bit crazier uh, and younger, and then going into a um, two hour run at Ironman race pace, and we would take um, 
typically measure, you know, try and measure as much as we can throughout that. Definitely weighing in pre and post each of those sessions. So you're getting an idea of, of what your losses are um, and your sweat losses. And uh, yeah, and having having someone, I, I used to typically pay a backpacker um, <laughs> to ride alongside and set up an aid station, you know, to stop every 2K and basically have the same things that would be available on the race course, um, have them ready for me to, to hit at each 2K point. And uh, yeah, that was we, that we've was attached that We've attacked that one a couple of times with the guys who were like, crazy heavy sweaters to the point where they're even way in before the swim dry off way in after the swim um two hours at ironman or three hours at ironman intensity on the bike weigh in again and then you run 2k repeats as in out and back and maybe every two or three you're, you're weighing yourself just to see actually how much you're losing um and a lot of the time that's not only for like the physical adaptations but it's just the mental side of things if people can really dial in that i know i'm losing this much and i have to do something about it um they'll get towards the end of the an ironman marathon or they'll get off the bike and not be already cooked and then they'll get further into the marathon with more confidence and you know staying hydrated which is always going to make you um slow down less and i should i should note um We've learned to do that much earlier in the prep than we used to. Um, it's obviously a very draining, fatiguing session. And like Clint said, sometimes the what you learn out of that session is more important than the physical adaptations. Like that's a very intense session. Um, but what we would get out of that is some really – people would really get their pacing adjusted to what's more realistic and – um, they would also dial in their nutrition and hydration. And, you know, a lot. I've had coaches say to me, oh, that's a stupid session to do. It's too stressful, this and that. And I'm like, well, how many Ironmans have you raced? I've watched so many people not have any idea what they can actually tolerate on race day. And, you know, there's the only way to really find that out is to put yourself through it. And you don't want to do it. You don't want to pay the money to do an Ironman to find that out. So um, it, it does, you know, it is... It's the the discipline no one talks about, which is the nutrition and the hydration, and and you got to you got to dial that in and making that session as specific as possible without getting in, someone injured or completely putting them in the hole is the is the goal of that sort of session. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it's just that specificity again, and it goes back to what Clint was saying before that um, you know it's it's doing the hard things, and that session is hard to to manage logistically. And it takes time and, and potentially it's a bit tedious to have all those things set up, but the the value of it and what you gain from it is, you know, definitely going to be worth it. So that's a good one. Super Saturday. Um, now you joked about this before. Will we, will we see you returning to racing and uh, do you oh. plan to race age group or professional? And where I would never, I would never, I would love to, I don't even know what the rules are with going back to age group. I'd love to, I love sprint triathlons and I like, I'd love to go back to doing that at some point. Um, I would never go back to racing professional unless I had 20 plus hours a week to train. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I've, I'm really, I'm going to, we're going to do a 50 K trail race in December. I'm just enjoying doing a few different things and, and not feeling the guilt of <laughs> always having that other session to do. But uh, yeah, I'd never say never. I certainly could see myself doing uh racing as an age grouper in five ten years time for just uh 
yeah, it's a hard one to let go. I do, I've always loved the training, even even though I was a bit burnt out on the racing. I've you know even now I've, I'm rarely doing less than ninety minutes training a day. I, I still love it. Yeah, pretty cool. Watch this space then. And what about you, Clint? Any any races or ambitions I, coming up? I have been horribly lazy for a while, um, but it's certainly the itch is starting to come back. I've actually got Hawaii and New Zealand worlds qualifications for next year but looking at the stable of athletes we have at the moment both of those races i'll be more invested in them than myself so i'll decide closer to those times whether it's worth doing that but similar to reedy like i i might live in a false world where i think that not exercising is okay (laughs) and then when you actually start exercising again even if that's just 40 30 minutes a day like running the dog or whatever i just think that i operate a lot better and so does ready i can i can guarantee you that and so um mate yeah i I think i will next year but at the moment i'm very focused on what we're doing because it's building nicely yeah i agree with your point by the way about yeah your productivity how you how you feel how you sleep it all goes up if you if you just introduce exercise. And then I think there's also value in just having purpose to what you're doing. So whether that's to run a fast 5K or whether in your case it's preparing for Kona and uh, 70.3 world champs um, could end up being a big, big year for you. But um, I actually think like back to like just doing a little bit of exercise is great. But when you get enough time to go and ride your bike for a few hours, I come home with a lot of my athletes – kind of conundrum solved it's the time where i don't go out there and think about myself put it that way you're out there thinking you know oh maybe this will work for that person or you know they said this maybe i need to change that in their training so like although we're out exercising a lot of the time it's a lot of the time when we're solving the athletes issue or not issues the athletes are puzzles yeah yeah i agree i have some of my best ideas out training and by the time i get home i've forgotten them yeah, <laughs> they'll come back eventually. Yeah, exactly. All right, boys. Well, I am going to take this opportunity to thank you both for coming on. I really enjoyed that conversation and I'm sure, well, I hope listeners do too. But if they don't, I did anyway. And I hope you guys <laughs> did too. Thanks for your time. And Thanks, uh, mate. yeah, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. All right, thanks awesome. a lot. Thank you. Cheers, boys. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Age Grouper podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for future guests, please contact us via the Diary of an Age Grouper Instagram page. Alternatively, you can email info at jetcoaching.com.au. Don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. This podcast was born to discuss all things age group triathlon. As an athlete, coach, and fan of the sport, I've always been intrigued with different approaches to training and how to optimize an individual's performance. We will speak to athletes who perform at a high level, as well as those with an interesting story. We will speak to coaches with a vast array of experience and also experts in various fields. We want to sift through what the physiology labs tell us, as well as what we see the pros doing and take the lessons that apply to us. This is the Diary of an Age Grouper.